On occasion in our third segment of the program, we sometimes tend to go for the lighter stuff. I think we're going to do that today because, well, there's just some less than earth-shaking but amusing things that um, maybe they have a moral to them or a punchline to them. I don't know. I think I'm going to cite Unusually Stupid Americans, a compendium of all American stupidity by Catherine Petrus and Ross Petrus. There may be some lessons in this. Um, one of their sections was Class Action Suits, which I think I'll read from. It says, perhaps it's a sign of the times, perhaps it is a sign of the dollar. Perhaps, regardless of the cause, class action suits are becoming more popular. Filings increased by 338% in federal courts and more than 1,000% from 1988 to 1999. And it appears that the increase will continue. They note that a class action suit is a laudable thing. A company overcharges, scams, or otherwise harms unknowing consumers. Consumers band together as a class, sue the company, and make it pay for its iniquities. Lawyers are of necessity involved in said process. Such cases are most popular among personal injury lawyers. Some members of a class might not be aware that they are actually participating, but this matters not to the intrepid justice-seeking lawyer who incidentally collects his or her usual contingency fee multiplied by the number of plaintiffs, aware or unaware as they may be. So, yes, some lawyers are great believers in the power of a class action suit. And for good reason, as the following suits may demonstrate. These are cases in which the justice of the class action suit is a bit diminished, just as the payment to the lawyers is not. Case number one, who was sued? Occidental Petroleum. What the lawyer received? $3 million. What each class member received? $0. When one shareholder tried to protest the payout, he was informed by the lawyers that he couldn't appear in the court as he had no stake in the settlement. How about who was sued? United Parcel Service. What the lawyer received? 8 to $10 million. What each class member received? $0. Hmm. Okay, General Mills, makers of Cheerios, sued due to a food additive which wasn't harmful to consumers. What the lawyers received? $2 million. What each class member received? Coupon for a free box of Cheerios. Who was sued? Southwestern Bell sued on behalf of 6 million consumers who had supposedly been exposed to misrepresentation of a service plan. The lawyer who's filed the suit told the Austin American statesman that he actually had found little, if any, evidence of misconduct. The case was settled to avoid litigation costs. What the lawyer received? $4 million. What each class member received? A $15 credit on the phone bill. How about the lawsuit of Arista Records? They were sued when artists on the label, Millie Vanilli, were found to be lip-syncing rather than singing on the Girl You Know It's True album. What the lawyer received? $675,000. The lawyers, by the way, were not pleased with this amount and petitioned the court for an increase to $1.9 million. What each class member received? Well, it varied. Some got $1, some got as much as $3. And finally, my personal favorite. Who was sued? Bank Boston Mortgage. They were sued to return funds held in escrow for mortgage customers. What the lawyer received? $8.5 million. What each class member received? Negative $80 to $150 with a negative $91 average. Yes, minus. The class members had their accounts debited to pay for legal fees incurred fighting the suit. And how about stupid warning labels? We've had a field day with some of those over the years. There's all, those are always good for a laugh. Let's, let's go through a few of them. We will cite the item and its accompanying warning. Starting with 
item, toilet bowl brush. Warning, do not use orally. Item, fireplace log. Warning, caution, risk of fire. Item, 13-inch wheel wheelbarrow. Warning, not intended for highway use. Item, and if you bought this one, you may have been surprised by the label. Item, bathroom heater. Warning, this product is not to be used in bathrooms. Here's one that seems fairly self-explanatory, but nevertheless, the item, electric thermometer, had a warning that said, do not use orally after using rectally. And I have to say, hands down, my personal favorite item, CD player. <laughs> warning, do not use the UltraDisc 2000 as a projectile in a catapult. So, hey, you guys with a catapult, knock that off. All right, also in a comedic vein, we have a piece from The Week magazine. It was titled, The Last Word, and the subject question was, What Makes China Laugh? It notes that stand-up comedy is catching on in China, said Christopher Beam, but not everyone gets the humor. And in this look at humor, as it is known in the People's Republic of China, they start out with a program which uh, is recorded in Beijing titled, Is It True? It's broadcast on the Chinese state-run network CCTV2, hosted by comedian Joe Wong. Evidently, as Mr. Wong came out to tell jokes, the director wanted to record the audience members' reactions. So he said, don't be too quiet. This is a lively program. As the announcer shouted, everyone, please give a warm welcome to Joe Wong. And the opening bars of Van Halen's Jump played. Wong came running to the door behind the audience, gave the camera rock-on fingers and a Gene Simmons tongue wag, and bounded on stage. He said, hello, everybody. I'm Huang Zi, using his Chinese name, then added a pun. Huang, like a cucumber. Z like a watermelon. Mild chuckles. Glissando sound effect. That wasn't a joke, he said. And yes, we're as mystified as you are. The piece notes that Wong then launched into 10 minutes of American-style stand-up comedy with a distinctly Chinese set of punchlines. Such as, A man was arrested for robbing a bank using pepper spray. It worked twice. The third time they caught him because the police were from Hunan. Evidently, these jokes were punctuated with sound effects like the boing of a spring and the tinkle of a piano. The piece notes that watching his delivery and the audience's frequently awkward response, you wouldn't guess that he's one of the most successful stand-up comedians in China. This says as much about stand-up comedy in China, where the form is still in its infancy, as it does about Wong. When most audience members watch Wong perform, they're not just seeing him for the first time. It's their first experience to live stand-up, period. They're not always sure how to react. Now, apparently comedy in China is based more on just sort of a form of how things are done. The most widespread is Xing Sheng, typically translated as crosstalk, a tradition of two-person comedic performance that often features wordplay and references to Chinese literary classics, as well as singing and dancing. This apparently originated with street performers during the late Qing dynasty. Evidently, crosstalk was still booming by the time the People's Republic of China was established in 1949. As a popular art form, it made an ideal medium for spreading standardized Mandarin and revolutionary ideology. Mao Zedong was a fan. But his cultural revolution put an end to non-revolutionary art of all kinds, and many of the old crosstalk scripts were destroyed or forgotten. Stand-up didn't truly arrive until 2012, when a program called Post-80s Talk Show starring the young slacker comedian Wang Zhijiang, debuted on the Dragon TV network. Wang reportedly cut his teeth as a crosstalk performer, initially resisted this idea of stand-up. He said, I didn't think it would work. 
But the show did turn Wang into a household name, at least in the households of young urban sophisticates. Peace notes that by the time Joe Wang returned to China in the summer of 2013, the country was in the midst of a comedy boomlet. In addition to the rise of the internet and the success of Wang's show, the government played a role. After the bureau that oversees TV and radio restricted the number of American Idol-style music competitions and other foreign-influenced reality programming and a push to build morality, networks declared 2014 the year of comedy. Suddenly, stand-up was everywhere, even if people still didn't know quite what it was. The piece goes in to talk about a comedian called Zhou Libo. He is one of China's best-known comedians. Author Christopher Beam said he went to go see Joe because he heard he had a reputation for tackling thorny topics. One of his best-known routines deals with corrupt officials and the absurdity of calling them the people's servants. Where do you have servants riding in cars when the master rides bicycles? Where do you have servants living in villas while the masters live in assigned housing? Where do you have servants throwing around their master's money without even informing their masters? Noted Christopher Beam, while Joe may venture into sensitive territory, he rarely says anything truly controversial. The reason he said is simple. I'm patriotic. Wherever I go, I say China is good. Referring to comedians who take jabs at China or its leadership, he says, they're whiners and they're detrimental to the country. If I were a government bureau, I'd shut them down. I think it's clear that they they really don't get stand-up comedy in China. They note that every comic in China knows there's a line, but no one knows exactly where it is. There is some obvious stuff, the three T's, Tibet, Taiwan, and Tiananmen. But the details are anyone's guest, and that's how their censorship works best. Keep the rules vague and let everyone police themselves. Some comedians stay clear of the line, others edge towards it, place a toe on the far side, then skitter away. Occasionally someone plows right across it, but the results aren't always funny. The piece notes that uh, more than political restrictions, uh, the people in China's unwillingness to set aside their pride and take a joke is probably their main obstacle. Wang told the author, if I talk about Beijing smog, people will say, you're losing face for Beijing. This piece also notes that the comedians can discover that navigating show business in China is trickier than the U.S. Big theaters require performers to submit their scripts in advance, sometimes months ahead of a show. If the theater owner doesn't like certain jokes, the management cuts them. On the other hand, Wang found himself telling jokes that would never fly in America. He said, here you can joke about fat people. One of my writers is overweight, so we just wrote jokes making fun of him. And it was acceptable to joke about beating children. And at that point, I think I just had to throw up my hands and say, well, they got a long way to go in China and walk away. All right, I think we'll close here with some items about, um, about college. Let's go back to Unusually Stupid Americans and see if we can extract from this. We've got about three minutes left. They note there's been some educational advances in elite American colleges. They compare some stats from 1914 to 1993. The average number of mandatory courses in these elite American colleges went from 9.9 to 2.5. Number of days in the school year went from 204 to 156. The percent requiring math went from 82% to 12%. Number requiring history went from 90% to 2%. And the percent requiring literature went from 75% to less than 1%. What are they teaching them, you may ask? Well, let's take a look at that. They include a list of courses from 1995 to 2003 that weren't taught back in 1914 or any time since. You can see how far we've advanced, because these days you can study at Georgetown University philosophy and Star Trek. The course poses the question, is time travel possible? 
If you're at the University of Wisconsin, you can take a course in daytime serials, family, and social roles. Students analyze the themes and characters that populate television's daytime serials. Our pals over at UC Berkeley have a curious class going in male sexuality. The course includes lectures by porn stars, field trips to strip clubs, and visits to sex shops. And this one's hard to believe, but if you're in Emory University, you can study, you can take a course in literature and religion. Elvis Presley. In addition to musical analysis, students study Pentecostal Christianity, the phenomenon of pilgrimage to Graceland. The assignments include interviewing workers at a Burger King where Elvis was allegedly cited. That just about does it for today's program, which was produced, as they all are, by Edward McMillan. You have been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm your host, Douglas Everett, and I will see you next week at the same time. And uh, by the way, all the opinions that you heard on this program, we should note, do not necessarily represent those of KDVS, our sponsors, or the University of California. No matter how much we think they should, they don't necessarily. Number 47 said to number 3 Are you the cutest jailbird I ever did see? I sure would be delighted with your company Come on and do the jailhouse rock with me Let it rock Everybody let it rock Everybody in the old cell block Put that into the jailhouse rock Rock, rock, rock Shit.